بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم اللهم صل على سيدنا محمد وبارك وسلم وبعد thank you guys so much for coming we are now on the the fifth Mughal king Shahabuddin Muhammad al-Khurram Shah Jahan he is the third longest ruling Mughal king after Akbar Aurangzeb and Shah Jahan this is a miniature by the way all these miniatures were produced about four or five hundred years ago these are contemporary to to their era this is Shah Jahan the father with his son Dara Shuko and these are his 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 main generals uh, and courtiers behind them, Asaf Khan. Uh, this is him as a prince. Uh, Shah Jahan's real name was Khurram. As we know, each Mughal king has a title, right? Aurangzeb's real name is, uh, your Alamgir's real name is Aurangzeb Muhyiddin. So Shah Jahan's real name was Khurram Shahabuddin. And uh, he was actually Akbar's favorite grandson. And at the age of 15, he received a mansabdari or a military rank to start uh, leading armies, which was phenomenal at that time. Usually you, you waited to the age of about 22, 23, and you proved your medal as a soldier um, until you received a military rank. Um, there was also a custom uh, where uh, taking from Hanafi fiqh, where so when you do an aqiqah, uh, you, you shave the baby's head and the equal to the amount you give in qurbani or, or some type of uh, uh, sadaqah, the Mughal kings extended that to the, the weight of the baby. So they would take the weight of a baby and put that on a scale, on a mizan, and give that amount of gold and silver in, in sadaqah and zakat. This is uh, the lineage. So obviously we spoke about Babur, Humayun, Akbar, Jahangir, Shah, uh, Shah Jahan. Um, these are the wives and uh, the uncles. Obviously, you know, Jahangir had married an Indian woman, Raja Uday Singh. Um, and so the, the lineages now have become half Turki and half Indian, right? And uh, Shah Jahan himself will marry an Iranian woman. So the lineages then become between Turki, Indian, and Iranian, right? Um, this, uh, the histories that we're drawing upon, three major histories were written. One by Abdul Hamid Lahori, one by uh, uh, Mullah Qazwini. One is called the Badshah Nama, the other is called the Badshah Nama, and the third is called uh, Amal al-Salih. Um, these are the front pages of these. We still have them today. These are, these are massive, massive volumes of, uh, of history text. Um, you can sort of just see a glance, um, you know, on the left-hand page. He's quoting ayat of the Qur'an, etc. You know, tafqahun tasbihahum, etc. Um, this story is, is, is going to be important just because there's a lot of myths. Um, at the age of 15, Shah Jahan was engaged to uh, the Mir Bakhsh or the Mir Divan, the, the, what we would say today is the CFO, the, the chief financial officer or the, the chief revenue officer of the Mughal Empire. We spoke about him last week, uh, Asaf Khan's daughter. Her name was Arjuman Banu Begum. Um, Shah Jahan did not like um, people to take his wife's name. Um, just like today in Urdu, we say, etc. We don't take uh, somebody's wife's name out of ghayr and out of respect. Uh, similarly, Shah Jahan... Um, made sure that nobody took any Mughal princess or queen's their actual name, um, as, as I said, we, we do today in Urdu um, as well. Um, and he gave her the title of Mumtaz Mahal. Mumtaz, obviously, in Arabic means excellent. Mahal means palace. Um, and they were married at the age of 20. Um, she gave him about six, uh, 12 to 16 kids. Um, about 12 of them died in childbirth. Only six survived. Uh, the eldest is Dar Shiko, then Shah Shuja, then Aurangzeb. Then uh, uh, Jah uh, Jahanara, and then uh, Murad Bakhsh, and then Roshan Ara. There were six kids. About 10, 10 to 11 died in childbirth. Um, what's really fascinating is that this is the first time in the Mughal Empire where we see um, a very um, 
noted affection between um, the king and his wife. And uh, this, for example, is a passage translated from Abdul Hamid Lahori, where he said, um, the intimacy, deep affection, and attention and favor which His Majesty Aisha Jahan, we would, the phrase we would use is Ala Hazrat, had for the cradle of excellence, another title from Mumtaz, exceeded by a thousand times what he felt for any other. Obviously, every Mughal king was polygamous, had multiple wives. And always that lady of the age was the companion, close confidant, associate, and intimate friend of that successful ruler in hardship and comfort, joy and grief when traveling or in residence. So when Shah Jahan would travel, and Shah Jahan did dozens and dozens of ghazawat um, throughout India, um, she would travel with him. The mutual affection and harmony between the two had reached a degree never seen between a husband and a wife among the classes of rulers, sultan. So this is the actual historian saying this, Abdul Hamid Lahori in the year 16, uh, 1610, all right, almost 500, 510 years ago, uh, for 410 years ago, right? And so, and this is not merely out of passion, but rather the excellent qualities, pleasing habits, outward and inward virtues, physical and spiritual compatibility on both sides caused great love and affection and extreme affinity and familiarity. Um, she unfortunately died within three years of Shah Jahan becoming king. So married at the age of 20, gave him about 12 kids, six died, and then she died within three years of him becoming king. Um, these, are, uh, these are pictures of uh, Shah Jahan's children. On the right is Shah Jahan and his uh, second oldest son, Shah Shuja. Uh, on the left is uh, daughter Shiko, Shah Shuja, and Aurangzeb. Aurangzeb is the youngest um, on, the, on the horse at the bottom. Obviously, um, and I'm going to spend a lot of time on the Aurangzeb lecture in January, inshallah, about the education and the training of a child in Mughal India. Uh, whether you're an alim son, a mufti son, a prince, what kind of education, both um, in terms of language, fiqh, architecture, math, but also um, horsemanship, uh, uh, archery, swordmanship, etc. Right? I mean, Aurangzeb is about seven years old and he already knows how to ride a horse. By the way, by the age of nine, Aurangzeb has read all of Ihya Ulumuddin by Imam Ghazali. Um, so I had mentioned that last week. So this is, you know, phenomenal, right? To be able to ride a horse and also be able to read Imam Ghazali's Ihya Ulumuddin by the age of nine or ten. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously you can see their swords. Aurangzeb also has a sword. Um, again, these pictures are about four or five hundred years old. And the background would be um, some nature within Hindustan. Um, don't, don't know where. I mean, they, as, as I mentioned a lot with Jahangir, they traveled so much. So this could have been anywhere from Afghanistan to modern-day Pakistan, to uh, the Dakkan, or even Bengal or Burma, you know, they always, always moving. Um, just really quickly, I know um, people aren't too much of a fan of the really intimate historical details. Uh, the Portuguese had set up shop within, we know they were in Goa. They also set up shop in an area in Bengal where uh, they, had give, they had been given a right uh, to, 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 to set up a factory within, within Bengal, the Portuguese. And as they did, they started to engage in piracy, plunder merchants, etc. So immediately, Aurangzeb sent an army, the governor of Bengal, to go and attack them. That's that's a picture of the Portuguese and the British, and then later on the British settlement. They built a church, etc. Um, and immediately, Shah Jahan um, did not tolerate that and uh, expelled the Portuguese from that era, uh, from that area. Um, these are the remaining political entities of Hindustan. Um, these are four, actually, four Muslim sultanates: the Nizam Shahis. The Qutb Shahis, the Qutb Shahis are what is today Hyderabad, the Adil Shahis, um, and, uh, uh, and then there should also be the, the Sultanate of Bidar, the, the Badid Shahis. So these are the four or five, uh, both in Hyderabad and within Bijapur, 
uh, and if I'm not mistaken, also Ahmed Nagar. They had all offered allegiance to Shah Jahan and Jahangir before them, but they were not officially part of the Mughal Sultana. And uh, both Ahmed Nagar and the Shah of Hyderabad rebelled against uh, Shah Jahan. Remember, Shah Jahan and Aurangzeb will call it Hyderabad Darul Jihad because uh, Hyderabad was uh, very stubborn as they are against uh, the Mughal Empire. Later on, after Aurangzeb conquered, he called it Farkhunda Abad, the Shining City, um, in 1682. And these are the remaining political, most of them are Shia, by the way. So the Mughals are now the only Sunni empire in Hindustan. And that was one of the major reasons why Aurangzeb also wants to invade to sort of create a Sunni, uh, Sunni exclusive empire within Hindustan. These are, by the way, this area between, from Nazim, it doesn't look that big, but this is really from the area from California to Texas. I mean, just the amount of square miles. So this is no, you know, those people who are from the Dakkan will know how big these areas are. There are rivers, you know, crossing forth. Um, Shah Jahan set up his base, his military base in Burhanpur, right? So if you wanted to invade an area, you had to set up a small military base, just like um, when the Sahaba conquered uh, uh, the city of Madain or Tesafan, their, their base was in Kufa, or when the Sahaba conquered Jerusalem, um, namely under Sayyidina Abu Ubaidah bin Jarrah radiallahu anhu and Sayyidina Muawiyah radiallahu anhu, uh, the Sahaba set up base in the Golan Hills, which is in present-day occupied Israel. Uh, but so Shah Jahan moved from moved the and Aurangzeb would take this again, uh, and obviously we we will have a two-part series for Aurangzeb because you know so a, a lot to discuss next month. Um, this is necessary um, in the Hanafi Madhab. Um, under the, uh, the, the fiqh that Sayyidina Umar anhu had mandated and that uh, Sayyidina Abdul ibn Mas'ud had then passed down to Ibrahim Nakha'i and then Abu Hanifa, um, you are not allowed to build a new place of worship um, as a non-Muslim. But if there is an old place of worship, you are allowed to, 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 um, to, to tarmim of it, which is to fix it up or to, uh, you know, um, do some renovation, etc. And in the city of Banaris, uh, which is today northern India, 16 different hin new Hindu temples had cropped up. So immediately Shah Jahan had all 16 Hindu temples um, leveled when he got word of it. Now, obviously the Hindus don't like that. Uh, you know, it's very clear from the text, you know, uh, but as Muslims, um, this is our law. This is our Sharia. Um, it's not, you're not allowed as a non-Muslim under, um, to, to, to build a new place of worship. Uh, this is the acts of the Sahaba, uh, this is the practice of the Sahaba, and I don't think we need to be apologetic for it, and you just own up to it. There's no need to play into, you know, oh, no, um, everyone uh, can build in whatever they want. That's not how the Sharia works. Um, now I'm going to start getting into, yeah. The Qutb Shahis. So, so you see Golkunda, Golkunda today is a fort outside of Hyderabad. That was the, uh, yeah. No, 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 no. This is a different dynasty. Very different dynasty, yeah. The, the first Nizami dynasty was the general of Aurangzeb. And I'm going to ask Hamza if we can do just a separate lecture on the first Nizam of Hyderabad. What a, what a phenomenal, what a phenomenal, phenomenal leader. SubhanAllah, may Allah, may Allah have mercy on him. Um, but yeah, he was very soon. Very, Yeah. So Qutub Shahi first in 600. Then the dynasty ends. Then the Nizam starts. Yeah. Sunni Hanafi. Yeah. 
Uh, I, I actually, so the first Nizam's fa- uh, grandfather, Firuz Jung, came from Samarkand. Actually went to the neighborhood where the first Nizam's family came from in Samarkand. So they were Turki. Uh, this is the city of Agra. You see the Yamuna or the Jamuna River under, underlining it because now we're going to come into the Taj Mahal. Um, just really quickly, I want to mention um, some points. So as I said, Shah Jahan moved. Uh, this is a moving capital, right? Qarvani Poi Takht. He moved the capital from Delhi to Burhanpur to engage in military expeditions against these different dynasties in the south. On the left, you can still see the fort of, Burha, of, of Burhanpur that Shah Jahan had built. On the right, we can see Shah Jahan hunting lions near Burhanpur. That's him with the musket, with the bunduk. People think that Europeans brought guns to the Mughals. That's obviously not true, right? There was, Babur himself had muskets, um, very advanced military technology, um, etc. Um, Shikari was a form of training for the battlefield. So um, those people who say that, oh, these Mughal kings were just hunting, this is a form of training yourself for the battle. I mean, hunting a lion. It's, this is a very challenging thing. Um, you know. And again, I mean, he's, he's leading military expeditions by the age of 20, 21, right? Um, and so when, when we talk about Muhammad bin Qasim, you know, conquering Sindh or Tariq ibn Ziyad at these young ages, it didn't stop after Hazar Sal Kebad. And after a thousand years, Muslim kings are still conquering at the age of 20, 21. So that's important, right? It doesn't just end in 710, 711 with Tariq ibn Ziyad and Muhammad bin Qasim. So now let's, um, let's enter into the stage of the Taj Mahal. Now, I know that we, we have a memory of the Taj Mahal in our minds. Obviously, you know, even in India, um, you can't escape the Taj Mahal. It is uh, truly a magnificent thing. I've, I've visited once, and uh, this is a picture from the 1860s by a British photographer when cameras had just been released. And, uh, and I just want to mention um, you know, some, level, some, some notions about ihsan or excellence that comes into building um, and what Muslims have accomplished and what level of diqqat and uh, uh, refineness and polishment and intelligence and brilliance and collaboration it takes to build something like that. And this is you know, something that uh, we have Muslims have not understood truly architecturally. And um, I don't think that even today that any, any, any country or any nation has built something um, as refined as this. And for those people who have visited, there's truly not, you've never seen anything like this in the world, As, especially when you go after the Ravaz and Aga. I don't know if anybody here has visited, but truly it's, 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 it's something else. And it's a, it's a, it's a mu'ajiza of the, of the Hadara Islamiyah, of, of Islamic civilization. And it's, it's unfortunate that we were never able to, to replicate that again, despite knowing what, what, what went into this. We have a lot of manuals. Shah Jahan was very clear. Um, we, have, we have what's known as... Um, uh, these Nuskahoye Ma'mari uh, 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 or manuals of architecture within Mughal India. Unfortunately, they are sitting untouched in libraries in Hyderabad and Lahore, and we have now lost the ability to, to build with beauty as we once did. Um, it's a very Hanafi building, by the way, and as, we, as I'll show you the Waqf document too. Um, sorry, this was, this was supposed to be a little bit earlier. Let me just quickly go through this. So, Aurangzeb, in a letter to his eldest son, Muazzam Shah Bahadur Awal, uh, talked about Shah Jahan's schedule um, every day. What was his daily schedule? So I just wanted to, to, to just read it out to you. This is directly from Aurangzeb's own letters, and we will discuss all of that um, when it comes. So it is said that His Majesty Shah Jahan, that he used to get up cheerfully at 4 o'clock in the morning, 
Then he performed wudu abshari tawfiq. Abshar in Farsi means a waterfall. So this is their, what their wuzu khana was called, abshari tawfiq. I mean, even the wuzu khana had names, truly. You know, abshari tawfiq. The idea that even just doing wudu is tawfiq from Allah, isn't it? To, to get it for Fajr is, is a tawfiq from Allah. And engaged himself in writing, reciting the daily portions of prayer. But here, the word is adhkar and ad'aya. This idea that even reciting adhkar before Fajr, right? Imagine a world where your king is reciting awrad before Fajr. Before daybreak, i.e. subh sadiq, um, after the cry of the mu'adhin, he said the morning prayer in the company of learned men. The word here is ulama. Then he went to Jaroke Darshan. This is a, a, a place where you would present yourself to the public and favored the Darshan. And favored, thank you. Um, um, and uh, what the, went to the public spot. And Darshani are the people who attended court with the blessed side of his auspicious face. At about 10 o'clock, he went to the Divani Am to hold public audience. Divani Am, um, as I, you know, as you guys can sort of see here, um, this is, would have been a form of Divani Am. You see all the courtiers, the generals, the ulama, the qadis, the muftis, the architects, the poets, um, you know, the physicians, everyone, everyone is sort of here. Um, coming together, and uh, they bow down, salute to the empire. This is what we call, you know, adabi ars, taslim, etc. Um, the ministers and the treasurers represented to His Majesty the arrangement made for the crown servants, and the facts about their good services, and the loyalty of inspectors, police officers, supervisors, and district officers, and fulfilled the desires of everyone and encouraged others. Remember, you have cities like Lahore, you have cities like Kabul, you have cities like Kandahar, you have cities like Gujarat, you have cities like Surat. Right? You have cities like Dhaka, you have cities like Chittagong, you have cities like Muzaffarabad, you have cities like Murshidabad, right? you have cities like Srinagar. I mean, how do you, you have cities like Lahore, uh, Baluchistan, Sindh, these are all part, and Shah Jahan has to deal with uh, the representatives and the governors and the treasurers and the officers of all of these various regions. I mean, today, unfortunately, Muslims are unable to, 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 to would they even be able to run a city, right? So think about the level of sophistication that is necessary to, to, to establish a dawla and a sultana and to maintain that for 300 years. After the usual inspection of the imperial horses and elephants, at 11 o'clock, he went to Divani Khas. Divani Khas is a more exclusive thing with just the generals and the, and the ulama. In this place, the secretaries reported to him the facts about the newly appointed officers. Because again, there's a very sophisticated uh, system and hierarchy, right? Of the zameen dars, of the tahsil dars, of the ta'alluq dars, of the fawj dars, of the mansab dars. Right? All of these different, all the chaudhris, all of these people have to work together, right? To, to build, right? And to construct and to maintain and sustain, right? Every single day, how many problems come up, you know? Um, they further related to him the important facts and events occurring in every province, every province, right? How many subhas, how many provinces existed? These transactions uh, were carried at till noontime. So this is only up until dhuhr. Imagine that. This is already, this is how much can you accomplish as. One man, right? After this, he directed his attention to take the special food. We're going to talk about the Mughal, Mughal cuisine, Qurma, Qima, and 500 other items that Shah Jahan had, had cultivated within our, our, our cuisine in our, in our, in our Bawar Chikhana. After this, he directed his attention to take the special food, which was emphatically prepared from lawful means. For strengthening the body, having strength for prayer, this is not dua, this is namaz, and giving justice to his subjects. He took his dinner in proportion to the need for maintenance of life in the body. These are Aurangzeb's words. Then he inquired about the eating and drinking of those who were maintained by him and of those who were given daily food by him, most of whom were men of learning and excellence. This is ulama and fudala, seekers after knowledge, tulab al-ilm, needy and poor persons, fuqara, ghuraba, orphans, yatiman, destitute, and sick men. 
and he used to recognize most of them when, with an alchemy-like sight. Then he retired into his special room where he slept from, from 11 to 1 o'clock, Qailula, for a time with an awakened mind. At 2 o'clock, he came out from his room, performed ablution, and engaged himself in reading the Holy Qur'an. After saying the noon prayer with sacred mutterings on his lips and a rosary in his hands, he came to the Asad Burj, this is a type of tower, and took his seat there. And again, the chief ministers presented themselves before him and engaged themselves in representing to and producing before him the financial and political questions and presented before him petitions to be signed, economic questions, financial questions, social questions, political questions, theological questions, legal questions, right? At 4 o'clock, he returned to the Divani Am. At this time, the, the registrar, i.e. The, 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 the check the, and the financial registry, and the private secretary, the Munshi, presented before his august presence those who were recently appointed in the sums of money as Jagirs. Right? The, the Jagir system is a, is a phenomenal system. We have, we have Muslims have not really understood the, the, the complexity and the richness of the Jagirdari system that was able to maintain religious, political, and economic wealth and independence of Mughal India. After sunset, he retired from the Divani Am, offered his Maghrib prayers, and then entered his special private chamber. These were there were present sweet-tongued historians, Mu'arrikhin, Naqissa Khan, eloquent storytellers, sweet-voiced musicians, and numerous travelers. The females were sitting behind the parda, while the males in front of it, right? So the parda is not a new thing. It's a, you know, the nobody saw the Mughal princess or the queen in public. Um, in accordance with the dictates of His Majesty's noblest and highest nature, each of them related stories of ancient great personages and kings and spoke about the wonders and antiquities of different countries. In short, His Majesty passed till midnight, the hours of day and night in this manner, and thus did justice to his life and sovereignty. As my paternal love regarding, this is now Aurangzeb talking about himself, as my fatherly mater, paternal fatherly love regarding my son is from the heart, i.e. true and sincere, and not from the pen, I was obliged to write and inform my dear son what was good and valuable. I have penned what I have been able to recall to this, uh, what I've been able to recall to mind this time. Ma'azirat, ma'azirat. Excuse me, excuse me. What a schedule, right? And then people say that the Mughal kings were just ayash, ayash, right? I mean, that's, isn't that ghiva? Isn't that, isn't that buhtan? I mean, one thing you do a ghibat of someone who's living. One thing you do a ghibat of someone who's dead. Um, this is uh, the, uh, the city of Agra in the early 16th century. Um, these are the Havelis, the mansions of the, of, the, of the army officers. And all of these are gardens. So there's a river, gardens, and then you have the fort walls. The Agra fort is still standing today. Um, and the Mughals were really into, into gardens. And uh, I want to speak about three Quranic verses specifically that the Mughals always took from when they built their, their, their gardens. Um, you can see the names of all the gardens underneath. Baghe, Shah, Nawaz. I'm just going to read some of the names just so that people can at least hear it. Rose of Afzal Khan, Baghe Khaja, Baghe Sultani Parvez, Makbar of Ertimadu Dola, Baghe Musawi, Bagh Padshahi, Moti Bagh Padshahi, Bagh Padshahi, Lal Bagh Padshahi, Second Shahar Bagh Padshahi, and some of the Havelis, Haveli of Asalat Khan, Haveli of Mahabat Khan, Haveli of Hushtar Khan, Haveli of Azam Khan, Haveli of Islam Khan, Padshahi Kila, Haveli of Darashiko, Haveli of Khanijahan Lodi, Haveli of Hafiz Khidmat Gar, Haveli of Asaf Khan. 
حویلی اف عالمگیر حویلی اف عالمگیر مشد مبارک منزل حویلی اف سیاست حویلی اف جعفر خان حویلی اف وزیر خان وغیرہ وغیرہ گارڈن On the left is what it takes to build a fort and a masjid. You can see the stonemasons. So what's exactly going on is that you have um, boats carrying stone and uh, you had the sang tarash. Doesn't anybody know what the, name, the term sang? A hundred years ago, this was a common word, sang tarash. Who knows what that word means? Marble chisel. Thank you. Thank you. Sang tarash. Mulana Rumi has a whole poem just on the sang tarash. Tarash in Urdu means to cut. Um, And uh, you see people carrying stone, marble, lime. You have people cutting it. You have people carrying it. You have the artisans. Who have, then you have women standing on the top right who are carrying, opening, because lime, you have to melt it, and it's a very complex process, and then to hold it. Just when you see a Mughal masjid, just think about how much I, uh, uh, brilliance and sophistication went into the construction of that. Um, you know. And so this is uh, from the Akbar Nama. And I just wanted you to see Right? This is something that, uh, uh, that, that Muslims were involved in, in every aspect of their lives. Um, these are pictures of certain, um, the, the Sankh Tarashis today in Agra. Um, so uh, some of the skills that would have been needed to create something like Taj Mahal, again, the Sankh Tarash, the Marmar Tarash, right? Marmar is, is, uh, is marble in, in Urdu and Farsi. You need the inlays. So you see this floral or those flower designs, again, What's the, what's the verse in Surah, Surah Ra'ad on the second page? Nakhliyun wa sinna'un wa ghayru sinwanin, etc., etc., etc. On the second page of the, of the fifth ayah of Surah Ra'ad. Right? And these ayat are so clearly used when you look, read these Mughal manuals and so clearly known. It's not just, you know, today we don't do, even do tafsir of those ayahs. But a true tafsir of the ayah is when you build something like the Taj Mahal based on the ayah of the Quran. Yeto ek kasam ki tafsir hai. Nay? Right? And um, on the right, you have the Portuguese who had brought jewels from Portugal and Spain. Um, also, uh, uh, those are also Muslim jewels, by the way. These are Spanish Muslim jewels that they had taken. So you can't escape Islam wherever you go. Um, these, are, these are some of the, the plan works. You see on the right, you see brickwork and lime mortar, brickwork, uh, header course, vertical sandstone slab, horizontal sandstone slab, sandstone facing slab. Um, Uh, craftsmen and stone inlay were called Pachnikar uh, um, and uh, you know the carvers worked by squatting over the pieces of stone and using hammers and chisels as can be seen today as damaged or deteriorating pieces are replaced with new work on the pattern of the old on the direction of such men as Haji Nizamuddin Naqshbandi um, the Naqshbandis were, 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 were very intimately involved also in architecture he was a follower of the Naqshbandi Sufis keeping up the old tradition of the involvement of the mystic Sufi brotherhoods and the arts of building What is Bahauddin Naqshbandi's quote? Um, Dil bayar, dast bakar. Keep Allah in your heart and keep your hands working. Dil bayar, dast bakar. You know. Uh, 
Shah Jahan's style of architectural vision were namely five things. So the level of ihsan, right? When we think about what is Muslim excellence, when you build something, when you create something, right? Is that as Muslims, um, what, we can't build beauty in this world. We can't build things that people should envy and want to be like us, right? Did not Sayyidina Uthman, radiallahu anhu, beautify. Mashid al-Nabawi, as the hadith comes in Jildi Awwal in Bukhari, right? One is geometrical planning. The amount of geometry that went into these buildings, um, when you think about right angles and uh, the, 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 the isosceles uh, 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 parallelisms, right? Um, symmetry, right? Hierarchy, right? Proportional formulas expressed in triadic divisions, uniformity of shapes ordered by hierarchical accents, sensuous attention to detail, right? Sensuous attention to details. If anybody has visited the Taj Mahal, the detail is phenomenal. At, every, at any given square inch, right, is phenomenal, right? These are all Muslim artisans, right? These are all Mus this is all Muslim planning, right? So why today in India, the most beautiful thing is still a Muslim building, the Taj Mahal. And today, the, what do the Hindus say? They say that, the, and I don't mean all Hindus, I mean the, 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 the Hindutva, is that they, they refuse to believe that it's a Muslim building, so they say there was a Hindu temple built there. Right? Isn't that what they say? They refuse to accept Muslim excellence. Right? Um, and again, and this is why it's important to, to tell these stories. You know, someone, someone raised up a question of why, why are you talking about these Mughal kings? Talk about the Sahaba. Why talk about the Sahaba? Let's just talk about the prophets. Why talk about the prophets? Just talk about Allah. Why even mention the prophets? Just mention Allah. Hena, you could go that ad infinitum. All of the Mughal kings are not even worth one, one breath of Sayyidina Umar I can say that, I, I, I will die on that. Or let alone Sayyidina Muawiyah Doesn't mean we can't have one, five, six lectures on this. Right? And I, no, nobody's saying that these people are better than the Sahaba. Nobody, as I said, the entire Mughal civilization is not worth one breath of Sayyidina Umar. And that's important to remember and acknowledge. But let us at least learn Right, that's uh, all. Muslims don't build beautifully anymore. Right? Tell me, name me one, uh, you know, incredible, beautiful masjid in the past two hundred years that that the world looks at with beauty the way they look at the Taj. Just name me one. Can anybody name me one from West Africa to India to Malaysia? We have fifty, what, fifty-two Muslim-majority countries. Name me one. Any anyone? Just one building masjid that the world looks at with envy. None. Right. Are we, are we short of money? I, I was just reading the Islamic finance industry is worth $1.23 trillion between... Where, where is all that money going? You know, this is... Sorry. This is... This is... But, you know, just the geometry. I mean, this is, this is a, a surrealist uh, image that was painted by a British artist, um, you know, in the 19th century at the Taj Mahal. I mean, what, imagine just walking through that 300 years ago. I mean, who, what kind of beauty? You just become Islam on the spot when you see something like that. Nay? 
Um, I just let, let me let me just read um, one one thing on the rational strict geometry. So. These are these are sort of the plans interior, right? Look at that, right? Look at the arches, look at the rooms, look at the marble, look at the dome, right? On the right, these are Quranic verses. Uh, any, I don't know if it's, it's probably hard to tell. Uh, is uh, in, in grace. So if they were all, oh, they just loved Hindus and stuff, why didn't they just say that Shah Jahan is the greatest king in the world? Why did they put Quranic verses? Why? Henna? They, and then Surah Yasin is on the other edge, and then Surah Fath is on the other edge too. Right? This is the way that you read the Quran and you present, give the Quran to people in the world. But not just, okay, there's a thousand lectures happening every single day. But what about if you did tafsir of the Quran in your architecture? What if you did tafsir of the Quran in your intellectual values? What if you did tafsir of the Qur'an in your poetry? What if you did tafsir of the Qur'an in your non-fiction writing? I mean, truly, these are other, you know, um, um, you know, the, the plinth that the Taj Mahal sits on, the amount of marble that was necessary. And I, and I just wanted to mention, you know, people say that, um, oh, why, why are they building such lavish buildings? By the way, this is, just the complex, the, the, the Hindus don't talk about, the, the, the Hinduism doesn't talk about it. But on the left are two major masjids. They're still operating. You can still visit there today. There's just two major masjids on the left. And their goal was that Shah Jahan had get, granted waqf or waqf money for uh, Hufad to recite Quran in honor of his beloved wife. Is that, is that, is that something prohibited in Islam that you can't, that you can't do a waqf when people read Quran for someone? But the Prophet ﷺ encourages that, right? What's the hadith in Bukhari? You guys know the hadith in Bukhari and Muslim, right? So, I mean, um, and this idea that you can't, you can't beautify your masjid, Hanafi Fuqaha Ibn Nujaym um, has, has, has a long paragraph about this. He says that um, uh, there is, it is in fact mustahab to beautify your masjid. Mustahab. It's a, it's a virtuous thing, right? So, um, you know, Especially if you're as wealthy as Shah Jahan, who likely was the wealthiest man in the world of his era, um, as Shah Jahan is later, and then the Nizams are after him. Um, you know, why not use a little bit of that money to build some, you know, really gorgeous buildings? This is some of the interior, right? You can see the floral inlays, right? So that that process of marble and lime and sangtarashi all would have been necessary. These are really massive, by the way, um, Carmen. I don't know if you if you visited, but. I mean, anybody who has visited is, it's, you know, it's truly something that you haven't seen before, right? And the, um, the, the fact that 400 years later, Let the, you know, It will remain, you know, and let it, let it be a yad god, let it be a reminder of Muslimanu kya maqam ta you know, dunya mein, that they could forget. One thing is you conquer, right? Ye to ek baat the Mongolians conquered, they never built beauty like this, right? So, you know, um, and it took about 20, 22 years, you know? And uh, it, there's the, just the, the, the symmetry of this, this is, this is the, you know, this is a 3D thing, right? And I don't want to go into the, to, to the math of it, which, which we have, right? How many square inches, how many, they used the word guz back then, um, you know, I, there's a, a lot to say about it. These are some of the floral inlays in the Taj Mahal. 
right? These are these are a lot of these flowers are mentioned in the Quran. These are jasmine flowers, jasper flowers, violets, etc. Again, flowers are are a nishani of Jannah, and um, this is the Taj Mahal would have looked in Shah Jahan's era. Um, you know, you would have parked your elephant right before the first gate. So, I mean, I'm not, I'm not kidding. You would have parked your elephant right before the first gate. Um, there were ba bazaars lined up because every waqf was a self-generating waqf um, or a self-generating endowment. So the bazaars, the, the British or someone else destroyed them. I don't know who destroyed it. Somebody destroyed the bazaars and all those people lost their line of work. And how many hazar? I mean, Mir Taqimir laments this throughout his poetry, um, as does Ghalib. And, uh, you know, th those bazaars would have kept the, 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 would have provided the revenue for the Hafad to read Quran in honor of Mumtaz and Shah Jahan and for renovation, restoration work, right? So the, again, Shah Jahan is thinking two, three hundred years. Not only what will happen to this and in this world, but what will happen to my Hisab Kitab in the afterlife, Dono, right? Dil Bayar, Dast Bakar. Dil Bayar, Dast Bakar. As Mulana Rumi says, Garnabudi kushishi Ahmad toham me parastidi chu ajdadat sanam. That if it weren't for the kushish, for the efforts, the efforts of the Holy Prophet, you, you would have been worshipping idols like your ancestors. And this again, I, 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 don't, I, I don't think this is a controversial thing to say, but this is, this is a miracle of, this, of the civilization of the Holy Prophet. That our our, our civilization birthed in Hijaz in Makkah and Medina could produce something like this. Is this not a testament to the, to the truth of the Holy Prophet? Um, these, are, these are some of the materials from um, Adabe Alamgiri uh, that were used. Cornelian from Kandahar, Lapis Lazuli, Feiruz from Ceylon, which is Sri Lanka, Onyx from the Upper World. Upper World at that time meant Russia. Abid. <laughs> Upper world today in some sense. But Tunja from the River Nile from Egypt. Gold uh, from Basra and the Sea of uh, Hormuz. This is in Iran. Khatu from the hill of Jodhpur. Uh, marble from, from Makrana. Marmama from the city of Basra from Iraq. In, in the Mughal world, they were always hesitant of, of two kinds of merchants. Gujaratis and Iraqis from Basra. Um, Yamini from Yemen. Uh, Murga from the Atlantic Ocean. Gori from Gorban. Tamra from... The, these are all different types of materials. Musai from Mount Sinai, Musai, Mount Sinai, right? This is a type of gem. Gwaliori, this is from Gwaliori, Jasper from Iran, red sandstone from all directions, mainly from Uzbekistan. You can find from Divani Afridi, right? Think about this. And just this, what is this idea of Ihsan, right? What does it mean to, to build with excellence, right? And the, the major verse in the Quran for Shah Jahan is Jannat and Tajrim and Tahti al Anhar. Gardens underneath rivers flow. What, we, we're not allowed to, co to, to copy ideas from the Qur'an? What, what is the Qur'an for you then? Right? Obviously, there's so much barakah in your reading. I'm not denying that. But why can't you build based off that? Right? Jannatin, tajri min tahtil anahar. Also for uh, Shah Jahan, Sayyidina Sulaiman alayhi salam was, was um, the paradigmatic king because he was a prophet king. Right? Um, and he ruled a world empire. Right? We say that Sayyidina Sulaiman alayhi salam was a world emperor. Right? Shah Shah Jahan, right? Shah Jahan, right? And so this idea of Sulaiman alayhi salam. And he would imagine taking political ideals from Surah An-Namal, from Sayyidina Sulaiman alayhi salam. Does anybody think like that anymore? To take political theory from Surah An-Namal, just the, the, those, for any of those who have the last four pages of Surah An-Namal. Imagine that. Think about this. 
right? And this is what happens when, you, when your kid can read and understand the Qur'an by the age of 9 or 10, right? These ideas sit in your head, they marinate in your head, and then you go and show it to the world, right? Geometry. Because this idea that Shah Jahan believed in, Allah says in Surah Kaf, You will never find a change in Allah's design. There is mathematical precision in the world. And so let's replicate that. Right? And so the, 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 the geometrical precision of the Taj Mahal is something that is truly world-shattering. Right? And also this idea is that the eye is a pathway to beauty. What does Muana Rumi say? That man is all vision. Everything else is skin. And as Imam Ghazali teaches us, the eyes are the closest pathway to the heart. So when you put beauty in your eyes, you will see the beauty of Allah. Let us, you know, see beauty again. Right? I mean, think about this. Just from five, six Quranic verses can create something like this. A, a vision, you know, as Sheikh Amin teaches us, drawing from the Quran to, to, to cultivate a vision and, and propagate it in the world. Um, we're, we're almost um, at the end. I just want to talk a little bit about poetry. Um, Shah Jahan was, a, was a phenomenal at Arabic, Persian, and Turkish. Uh, Kafia, which is, a, which is a very advanced Arabic manual. We have actually his copy that is ax, uh, extant today and sitting in the British Library. The average Mulan, by the way, cannot read the book Kafia. It is such an advanced Arabic grammar book. Um, the fact that a king is reading an Arabic grammar book like that is phenomenal. Right? We have a seal on that. Right? And uh, this is his, uh, a divan of Hafiz. You can see the line of Yazid ibn Muawiyah that he brought. Come and bring uh, the glass. Because Ishq Asan Namud. Love appeared so easy at first, but I fell into so many difficulties. Um, there are three major poets from Shah Jahan's era, three Malik al-Shu'ara, or three poet laureates. Namely, one is Qudsi uh, John Mashhadi. The second is Abu Talib Kalim. And the third, uh, I forget his name. These are different Mughal poetry manuscripts. I mean, when was the last time a Muslim wrote a book with this much beauty? I mean, truly, I think that the last person to bring beauty into the Muslim world was truly probably just Iqbal. You know, I, I don't think of, um, you know, anyone else who sort of had that understanding to really think about what can Muslims offer in every dimension of life. This is a, so Qudsi Mashhadi was, is buried in Srinagar in Kashmir. Um, may Allah free it. Uh, this is a poem of, of his that he wrote and would have recited to Shah Jahan. So I'm just going to recite some lines just so that what type of poetry he would have listened to. So this is Shah Jahan's poet. He says, Even though I know that the day when I meet Allah will not be easy. That in the evening of separation, we still have the hope of mourning. Darshabe hijri umide sahari marabas. Let's look at the word sahari, right? Umide sahari marabas. Even in the evening of separation, we still have the hope of Allah in the morning. Agar azdidai kuta nazarin inuftadi nist gham sohbat sahib nazari marabas. 
even if I have a short-sighted vision, why should there be grief? That Muslim who has another, who has vision, he looks at me once, that's all I need. As Hazrat Hakim al-Ummat Ashli Tanwi would say, um, this is obviously the, the maqta, the where you put the takhallus, his takhallus. How would you translate takhallus? His, his short name, his pen name. Qudsi. Um, by the way, I think Iqbal was the only poet who didn't give himself a name. He just kept his own name. He, he felt like it was too much riyakari to take a name. So Iqbal just kept his own name. He doesn't take a takhallus. Qudsi, as shiva asari mara bas. Qudsi, from the sweetness of his speech, we just need one effect of his shirin, sukhan, shirin kalam. That's his grave, by the way, in Srinagar. Obviously, nobody takes care of anything anymore. This is Shah Jahan's farman for the Taj Mahal. Right on the left, you can see the Farsi. Um, these were uh, different things, and it's important again just to maintain it because obviously we know. Um, just four years ago, the Indian government demanded that the All India Waqf Board produce evidence that uh, the the Taj Mahal was uh, built by the by Shah Jahan, and so we had to produce this because <laughs> they wanted to take it over. So just we have this here, you know. As Allah says in the Quran, قُلْ حَاتُوا بُرْحَانَكُمْ إِنْ كُنْتُمْ صَادِقِينَ اپنی دلیل لے آؤ اگر تم سچے لوگ ہیں This is Shah Jahan's cuisine. Um, most of our current Indian Pakistani cuisine comes from the Shah Jahan kitchen, from the Bawrachi Khan of Shah Jahan. Qurma comes from the Turkic verb qawarmaq, which means to roast. Qima comes from the Turkic verb qimaq, which means to mince or dice. That's how qima is made. Nahari was a dish made by the Hakim Ahsan Jilani, who was the physician of Shah Jahan. Uh, made for the cold season of India. It was from the Arabic word nahar, like when nahari, etc. Um, and it was meant to be a post-fajr meal and where you had uh, uh, cooks and physicians working together to create new meals. So nahari um, is a Shah Jahani dish. Um, uh, when, my, when my uncle, uh, uh, my nani's brother was growing up in Hyderabad, he'd said that they would eat nahari still to this day after fajr. So it, it was still a morning dish. I don't know if that's still the riwaj, but uh, it is, yeah. That's good, good to hear. Good to hear. Shah Jahan would be at least um, And this is a manual that we have preserved of which there are about 1,200 recipes. I'm going to read out some of the recipes to you. These are about maybe 1% or 2% of the recipes. Um, it would be really awesome. The, by the way, the, 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 the cooking directions are still there. So if anybody wants to, you know, um, come and sit down with me. This is all in Farsi. So I just want to read out some of the, you'll, you'll recognize some, some of the names. But, uh, and again, people will say this is Ayashi, but then you also hear, why don't Muslims cook good food? So, okay, when we cook good food, then you call us Ayashi. When we don't do it, then you say that, oh, Muslims don't make any good food. Right? So it's, which one is it, you know? Let me just read out some of the names. Kabuli um, Bharoi. Pukhtan means to cook. Like you have the word Pukhta. Amboli Pulao. Pukhtan Kabuli Islam Khani. Pukhtan Ambeli Pulao Nogi Digat. Nogi Digat. Pukhtan Badanjan Pulao. What is Badanjan is eggplant, bagan. Um, Pukhtan 
پلاو نوع دیگر پختن انبوله پلاو پختن دختری پلاو کفته پختن معلومه پلاو پختن گیلانی پلاو پختن کشتنی پلاو ایدن ایدن این اردو مینز این عربی مینز آلسو پختن شیرازی پلاو ایدن پختن شیر شکر پلاو سو دیوز آلسو سویت تایپ پلاو پختن لقمه سمتینگ ایدن پختن کدو پلاو ورز کدو سکواش رایت سری یا ایدن پختن حلوه کشمش پختن حلوه شیر گاو ایدن پختن حلوه دخو بریان ایدن پختن حلوه بادام رایت آمینز نوع دیگر ایدن پختن تر حلوه داشتا ایدن پختن حلوه نرم ایدن پخته حلوه حلوه بونت مس بی سم اندیان تاون ایدن پختن حلوه بینسی ایدن پختن حلوه کانسی کدو etc etc on the left side you have پختن کباب دریایی پختن کباب ماهی پختن گرفته کوفته شاهی ماهی پختن ماهی کباب مختن ملاهی کباب پختن کباب بیزا مرغ بیزا از این عربیک پختن کوفته کباب شاهی ایدن پختن کباب etc etc I don't want to bore you guys but this is just something to you know really you know to to bring this level of diversity I mean there's no doubt that the that the people just say the Indian cuisine. What is the Indian cuisine but the Muslim cuisine? I mean, okay, dosa. You know, I probably we probably didn't make that, but that's okay. They can they can have you know they can have dosa. Hmm? Persian Persian would have been his main. Uh, Turkey would have been his home language. We've spoken with his uh, in, in Hyderabad. We still use the word annima. Annima is actually the Turkic word anne, which means mother. So at home, you just spoke Turkey, but the language of the empire was in Persian. But um, all books in tafsir and kalam and fiqh were written in Arabic. So you, had to, so you have a language for you know, every department of life. And obviously, Arabic is our, well, for every Muslim, will always be the language of our intellectual thought. Um, I'm going to, uh, Kamran is a lawyer here, and I just wanted to spend some time just talking about the Mughal judiciary. Um, this is between the Qadi the Mufti, the Sultan, the Muhtasib, the Miri Adal, the Divan, the Qazi, Qazi Subha. Um, because not only do you have to have a religious, cultural, art, artistic, intellectual civilization, you also have to have the Qadi. The Qadi is the most important aspect of your life. Think about how much of even, you know, in our basic American municipalities, right? You have the judge, you have the lawyers. They're so important to everyday life, right? So all of that comes from the Qadi. And every Qadi had to practice on the madhab of Abu Hanifa. Um, the Qadis were mainly appointed by the, 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 the Sultan, although they had the Qadi al-Quda, uh, the, the Qadi al-Qudat, or the, 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 the Chief Justice. And you also had the Sadr al-Sudur, which was our version of the Mufti Azam, or the Grand Mufti. Even today we say Sadr, right? For, for principle and stuff, these words have carried on. Um, and it was a remarkable relationship that worked out because you had the Fojdar, so you had the warriors, and then you had the Qadi, which is you had the judge. Also, in the army, you had something called the Qadi al-Askar. And I believe the Ottomans took it from us. But someone needs to do more research because the Mughals were moving so much. Shah Jahan's army, can anybody take a guess how large Shah Jahan's army was? Ballpark it. Never lost a battle, by the way. But when you hear the number, you'll, 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 you'll know why. Anybody, just ballpark guess. Uh, kind of close. Anybody else? Close, closer. 920,000. Uh, 
You know, when you rule an empire from Kandahar to Lahore to Dhaka to Burma to Burhanpur, you know, you can raise an army like that, you know. Um, and so in that army, you obviously had a, you had to have a Qadi, right? Because you have civil legal disputes. Think about every, every chapter of fiqh. Because remember, Islam is the only civilization in the world in which religiously we had a law at every single level of society. Christians don't, never had that law. They just implemented Roman law. Hindus never had a law. Buddhists never had a law. The Jewish tradition has a law, but they never had the moment to really implement it in the way that we had with the Sharia. So imagine we have the Sharia, not just somebody giving a Jummah khutbah, but implementing, affecting, and um, uh, influencing the, the, the lives of not only Muslims, but also non-Muslims. Because if you're, if you're the daughter of a Hindu, right, and you're fought, as a Brahmin, you don't get anything. In Islam, at least you get half, right? And so these are, um, these are just some, some notes. This is the system. Um, and I just wanted Garman to, to come and sh share some parallels. What sophistication existed, right? For the, we, we have not really understood that. Um, this is a picture I found in Samarkand of what, the, of what Qadha looked like in Samarkand. I don't know what it looked like in Mughal India, but you had the Qadi, you had the two witnesses, and you had the Munshi. These are two muftis on the right. Um, but yeah, so this, this will be the last thing. Thank you guys so much. Jazakallah Bismillah, salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa man wala wa baad. Thank you, Muft, uh, Mullah Saleh. Um, as Mullah Saleh mentioned, it's important to know where you get your knowledge from. I'm an attorney here that's a student both of the U.S. law and a student of the Sharia. Um, and, uh, you know, there's uh, been so much that uh, Mullah Saleh has talked about with respect to the legal aspect and legal culture of the Mughal Empire. I'm going to speak a little bit more broadly. It's not specifically about Shah Jahan's era only. The law, as you probably have seen with the fiqh as well, with the Sharia, it develops over time. And so, you know, at what point in time you look at the Mughal Empire, the law may be shifting a little bit. In the beginning, the, um, the Sadr and the uh, Qadi al-Qudah was, was embodied in the same person. The Sadr was responsible, for example, for giving land grants and taking care of like the Oqaf, right? And the Qadi was responsible for uh, settling disputes or giving advice to the Sultan um, and to appoint the other, the local Qadis. So at one point they became split. So it's good to, you know, contextualize yourself as to where you are in the era or in the, in the context. But there's uh, three things that I'd like for you to remember from my part of the presentation, okay? And Mullah Saleh alluded to many of them. Uh, and I'll list them out for you, and then we'll go into a little bit more depth. I'll take about 10 minutes of your time, if you'll get, if you, uh, give me that much. Uh, and so the first thing I'd like for you to learn from this and go away with and, uh, and benefit from is uh, that um, the concept of justice in the Mughal Empire was not a concept of absolute justice. Uh, and what we mean by that is because they believed in the ghayb, because they believed in the akhirah, that they recognized that in this world you may not get full justice. Okay? So the first thing is, that, and that's very different than the U.S. or the English common law system, because they don't think about the akhirah. They don't think about that. They think you have to get everything returned to you in this world. And so it becomes this toss and struggle and strife to give every, everybody the last penny or the last pound that they're owed. Right? And whereas for Muslims, the idea is 
good things will happen and bad things will happen. It's all ibtila in this world. It's all a test for us. And we, do, we should fight for our rights, but we should also be able to accept some loss and move on because ultimately this life is not our goal. Right? So that's the first thing. First thing is we have a different concept of justice. It's about swift justice. Moving on with your life, it's not about absolute perfect justice in this world. Second thing I'd like for you to take away from this is that the legal culture, the legal milieu created a culture of Islam. It, you return to this framework of what does the Sharia ask of us? What is the Sunnah? What is the higher other? What is like the, the, the things that we aim for? Not just the base minimum of what's fard and what's haram, but what are, what things are mustahab? What things can I do ihsan with? How can I benefit others more than benefiting just myself? And so that was embodied in the, in the legal tradition. And you see this, and I'll give a couple examples, ta'ala. And then the third thing is, I can only give a couple examples. And Mullah Saleh also alluded to this. Why are we looking at a picture of the Quda in Uzbekistan? Which is like the origins, right? But now you're a few hundred years removed. Because Babur has left, they've gone down into Hindustan, and they've married into uh, Hindu families and uh, you know Farsi-speaking families, and the, 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 a, a new qawm, a new population has started that speaks Farsi and that speaks Turkish, that develops a language of Urdu. Right. So why is he doing this? Because the research in English is very minimal. Right. The, in, the research is in, in, not just in English, but that's available to us that are not inside of. Uh, in Lahore or in Hyderabad, where the manuscripts are that Mullah Saleh talked about. And so we have a job to do, right? We have a job to do, and that is, what is that? Is to see how they lived, so we can bring those principles, which are based on Quran and Sunnah, into our modern world. Because you can't just go back to 7th century Arabia. A lot has happened from there to now. And this is one of those, this is what, uh, and two points I mentioned here are, you know, one of the most concrete or most um, impactful things that I heard from the ulama is what is the job of an alim? What is the job of a scholar? It's for them to preserve the Prophet's sunnah and pass it on to the next generation. That's ultimately their job, to preserve the deen. That's why they are the inheritors of the, of the anbiya. That was the, pro that was the main, that was the job of the anbiya, was to bring revelation and guidance to people. And we're not getting any more anbiya. Right? We're, that's not happening anymore. And so the ulama are in that place and that's their responsibility. It's a heavy burden, but that's their responsibility. And when I look at that, that idea of taking what prior generations did that were on the sunnah, that were practicing the sunnah in their lives, you can't just go back seven, you can't go back 14 centuries. You have to look at the generation before you because we also believe in the sunnah and taking from living beings who knew how to understand it. You know, if for the recipes that Mullah Saleh um, showed you, right? Even if we read them aloud, there's going to be some andaza that gets left behind that aunties and, you know, our mamas and, you know, dadis and nannies always use, right? That little bit of andaza is gone. We're going to have to experiment to maybe get back to it a little bit. But if they were alive to tell us what that, that ratio was, that like estimation is, we'll get a lot closer to reproducing what they were able to reproduce. And so those three things, again, are that uh, we don't have, the, the culture exuded um, swift justice, not absolute justice, because we believed in a ghayb. 
that the, uh, the law um, promoted this culture of ihsan. Okay, the, and it was, it was the framework they worked in. Just like, uh, and this is where I'm going to speak about more examples, just like in the American context, people will say, oh, that's my freedom of speech. That's my right to freedom of religion. This is the framework they worked in. This is the framework we live in. We live in a, free, in a framework where we say, you can't discriminate against me because of my race, color, creed, or belief, right? For them, Muslim and non-Muslim, you have to also remember, uh, the majority of the population was not Muslim. They were ruling as a minority. Never was it a majority. And so the, even for the Hindus, they referred to the Sharia as their base, their framework of how things should be. And the benefit, or I should say, the, the, the amazing thing about that is that is, that is a prophetic trait that we benefit other people with what Allah Ta'ala gave us. It's not just for us, right? And so one of the examples we look at, um, this comes, you know, again, there's a few examples. We have to do the work. That's the third point. We have to do the work and we have to get the manuscripts. We have to go to Al-Lahore. We have to go to Hyderabad. We have to go to Delhi. We have to get there and get access to these things, review them so we can then update what they did and try to bring it into our generation before it gets lost with what's happening in, in that region now, right? The, our history is being erased. And I, I would just mention this because we're talking about history. People talk about Spain and Andalusia and how the Muslims were erased from there, right? That was in the late uh, 1400s. We're witnessing that happen in India right now. That's my belief. If we don't stop it, that's what's going to happen. And people are going to look back from 2500 and say, oh, India used to be this place that had Muslims in it, that had this culture that built the Taj Mahal, that built Al-Hamra, that built these things. And it's, you know, how do they do it? And where do those people go? And so um, one of the things I, I want to mention is when we talk about the swiftness of justice. Um, can I go back on a slide here? So this is the administrative system. Right? Because we believe in a ghayb, our authority, did not, the Qadi's authority did not come from a constitution. It came from Sultan. And why did it come from Sultan? Because Sultan was a representative of Rasulullah on earth, sallallahu alayhi wa right? The Sultan is not a representative of Allah, subhanahu wa ta'ala. Right? And this is something that our ulama here in Chicago have taught us. Right? What did, the, uh, what did uh, Sayyidina Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu call himself? He didn't call himself... Uh, right, uh, the Khulafa of Allah. He said he was Khulafa Rasulullah. He was authorized by Rasulullah. So we represent uh, the Prophet We don't represent Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala, right? So what uh, Mullah Saleh was saying, you know, why talk about the Mughals? Why not talk about the Sahaba? Well, why talk about the Sahaba? Let's talk about Rasulullah. Well, why talk about Rasulullah? Let's just talk about Allah. And you can go with that at finimum. We are connected through generations. That's the beauty of Islam. That's the beauty of our sunnah. That's why we haven't lost it. Every Qari, every Hufaz who's in here has learned from his Qari Sahib, who learned from their Qari Sahib, all the way back to a Sahabi. Right? All the way back to Rasulullah, all the way back to, um, to uh, Sayyidina Jibreel alayhi salam. Right? That's how it works. We can't cut that off. But the administration was set up that way. So the Qadi was put in position by the Sultan, an authority of him being a representative of Rasulullah on earth. Okay? But it gets really decentralized from there. 
the Qadi could appoint local judges, uh, the chief justice would local, uh, appoint local judges, and those local judges, also you have to remember the, uh, the Mughal Empire is very diverse. Right? I think this is something people forget. There were different languages being spoken. Even if you call the religion of Hinduism as one religion or as one way, it's not, it's not the case. They have different beliefs. They have different practices. Hinduism is just a catch-all because those are the people that live in the Indus Valley that are not Muslims. Right? If you talk to um, historians of religion, that's, that's how they looked at it. These are just the, they're, that's why they're called Hindu. They're Indus people. But they have many different dharmas, they have many different, uh, not just madahib, but they have de many different aqaid. They have many different theological beliefs that define their religions. They have many different languages, they have many different foods. They have different cultural um, practices. And so the qadi would have to be sensitive to those practices. And uh, one of the um, researchers that I was able to read that we can get in the U.S., and of course this is, this is preliminary research, it, you know, in, it seems to indicate that because of that cultural sensitivity and um, access and understanding the culture, it, it helped bring the Hindus into uh, using the Qadi, right? The Qadi was not um, in matters of civil um, dispute, so between uh, citizens, but not between the state and the citizen. Between citizens themselves, the Hindus would come to the Muslim Qadi. One, because they you know, they frankly did not have a really robust legal system themselves. Uh, as Mullah Saleh mentioned, right? Islam is the unique religion that has, a, a, you know, a chapter of fiqh, a chapter of religious law about every aspect of life. You know, from your clothing and your transactions and your worship to your, uh, how you engage with each other and criminal law, it's all covered. Every aspect of life is covered. And so they would go to the Qadi and in, in, in fact, there was often, they would take the rule of the Sharia because it would be in their benefit. Not only would it be in their benefit, but that's what they understood to be the norm. Because they lived in this place where, you know, Shah Jahan went and knocked down those temples. Why? Because Islam is the law of the land, right? And if you wanted to opt out and you wanted to choose your own thing, that may or may not have been possible. But we have more than uh, anecdotal evidence that they were going to the Qadi in their locality because they trusted them more. Because they trusted them to implement something that would be of benefit to them. And they often ruled on the basis of Sharia even though they were non-Muslims. Uh, so those are the things that I'd like to just mention. You know, the, 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 we have to do more research. And I think the next time we can talk about this, we should you know, have done that. We should do some of that research so we can talk at more length. Uh, I apologize for not having access to those things. I think it's something that we have to do. And we have to access these, uh, these manuscripts, spend the time to go through them, to understand how the legal system really worked. And I think it's only going to be Muslims that can do it because you have to, when many of the people that are researching this are non-Muslims, often they're Hindu background. Um, I'm not you know, uh, going to um, assume anything about their intentions, but for them to be able to think like a Muslim and understand the motivations of a Muslim and understand how a Muslim uh, applies the sunnah, is, it's really a big ask of somebody who doesn't practice Islam in their life every day. And so I, rec I, I commend them for their efforts, but we have to take the, we have to take the lead because we're going to be able to actually do it. And I think we have, we have a vested interest to do it. We need to understand how they live their life so we can bring some of those benefits for our lives and for our neighbors as well.
inshallah ta'ala. Thank you for your time. Jazakallah khair. Salatu wassalam wa rasulullah. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. Inshallah, yeah. If anybody has any questions either for me or Kamran, you know, you guys can go ahead and ask, inshallah. Oh. Yeah. Thank you so much, Kamran, for, for explaining that. He's a wonderful attorney at law, student of knowledge, uh, someone that I take a lot of knowledge and experience from. Um, yeah, there is no doubt that uh, uh, Shah Jahan was really heartbroken about the loss of Mumtaz Mahal. I mean, she, she gave him 12 kids, uh, and she died within three years after, you know, he... He became king um, and he did build it, you know, for her. Uh, but, you know, th this myth that like he promised her that he would never build another building. Obviously not true. He definitely built other buildings. These are all just myths that have come down to us. Um, absolutely not true. But I mean, he wanted to do it as sort of um, a way to increase hasanat for her. So you create this tomb and then you create masjids on, on either sides. And you hire Hafad and Qurra to read Quran and offer namaz on her behalf as Sadaqah Jariyah. No, 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 absolutely not. I mean, how does that how does that make sense? I mean, don't you want to build build again? Yeah, yeah. These are just folk tales, qisakhani, you know. Um, absolutely no no evidence for that. I mean, I mean, some someone who's waking up for four o'clock in the morning to do athqad is not going to cut off random artisans' hands. Also, just as a king, you wouldn't do that. You know, you want to build again. Not even Thaymor did that, by the way. Who, you know, a little bit more violent, but yeah. Anybody else? Yeah. It wasn't him. It was it was his brother Khusro. Oh. This is Khurram. Yeah, similar names. The three brothers: Khurram, Khusro, and Parvez. Yeah. Yeah. Because um, in in the Hanafi madhab, based on the practice of Sayyidina Umar radiallahu anhu, I believe it's a I don't know if it's a hadith, but it's definitely the practice of Sayyidina Umar, which is a hujjah for us. It's a proof for us is that uh, you're not allowed to build new churches or synagogues under Muslim rule. Um, you are you are only allowed to to renovate them. It, it it's it's from Sayyidina Umar, and we're gonna have Husn Azan that Sayyidina Umar was taking from the practice of the Holy Prophet alayhi salatu wasalam. No, 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 nothing, nothing new was built, but he didn't destroy. Yeah, that the issue with Shah Jahan destroying temples was that the Hindus are living with a mu'ahada, a pact, like we have a pact with the American government. You don't violate the laws. The law of the of the Hanafi madhab, you know, implemented in the Mughal Empire is that you can't build a new temple. So if you don't like it, obviously, you know, they could have just left. So they were violating the law. It's the, 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 Yeah, you don't know, huh? Why is it debatable? Because uh, Umar Zalazala, he, I, when he 
The practice of Sayyidina Umar radiallahu anhu. So Umar I mean, even the, some lady challenged Umar Zilatala, you know, and uh, he was wrong. So, uh, why? We're, we're not going to say that Sayyidina Umar was wrong. We don't have that. We don't have that maqam to say that. Hundreds of thousands of ulama have verified that. Um, and I would highly urge you to leave that to the ulama who are studied and trained um, in, in this tradition. It's definitely not our scope and place to challenge Sayyidina Umar. I'm sorry, I don't mean to be disrespectful. Yeah, but we're not gonna we're not gonna to to, to to use the evidence that an old lady she might have been a sahabia, a sahabi sahaba can we we are not gonna challenge sahaba. Yeah, you don't you don't have to like it, but uh, that is yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, uh, did not get enough time, but phenomenal, phenomenal question. Thank you so much for reminding. Um, the the peacock throne was called Takhte Ta'usi. Uh, in Farsi, it was a beautiful throne. Oh man, I totally forgot I, to do it in my presentation. Um, and uh, it was uh, it was something that was built by some of the diamonds that was donated by the Shah of Iran. It was a beautiful, beautiful throne. Let me see um, if Shah Jahan is sitting on it here. I can't believe it slipped my mind. It was uh... yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I'm just trying to see if I if I have one of them here. Yeah, no, I don't have. Yeah, I don't have it. Sorry. Yeah, maybe I'll I'll mention it next time. I I yes. Unfortunately, forty five years as a king. Hmm. Yeah, we would need to do some research into that to to verify that statement. That was a very very pricey thing. Uh, yeah, but no, there, there's no doubt that the, the the peacock throne was a very very valuable thing. It was pillaged by Nadir Shah when he pillaged uh, Delhi. Uh, we'll we'll get to the breakup of the Mughals in in February March inshallah but yeah sure yeah do you want to do it after or you want to do it right now thank you very much my name is Muhammad Osiuddin I'm living in uh, Wheaton and my friend is Atharili uh, Asad Saab. And he has his own library. And we want to do something in discussions in his uh, library. So I want all of you, because I have attended the two lectures here, so you people also interested about the knowledge and history and something, you know, we can discuss poetry, whatever you like it. If you have something, any something to write, or you want to deliver something, you can come there and do this. We can uh, fix the date or maybe any day in a week or weekend or something. So this is the opportunity we have to take advantage from this library. This is my the announcement. The second point is that very, very interesting about the history. I want to tell you two lines. I will read it about the Shubli Nehmani. I have to use the other glass. Okay, I'm sorry for that. Okay, 
मुद्दत हुई जब मैं अलीगढ़ का प्रोफेसर था एक साहब प्रिंसिपल ने मुझसे कहा गुलबदन बेगम का हिमायमनामा कहाँ मिलेगा लंदन से एक खातून ने इसका अपना पता पूछा है मुझको अपनी तारीखदानी पर नाश था मेरे हरूर को तोड़ने के लिए यह कुछ कम न था मैं हिमायमनामे को एक तरफ सरे से गुलबदन को भी नहीं जानता था आज भी हमारी हालत नहीं है हम हिस्ट्री में हम किसी को नहीं जानते हम दो साहबाब में बैठते हैं वी डिस्कस मेनी थिंग मेनी टॉपिक्स वी डिस्कस अबाउट दिस यू नो फिल्म इंडस्ट्री वी डिस्कस अबाउट द बॉलीवुड वी डिस्कस अबाउट द शाहरुख खान सलमान खान समथिंग बट वी विल नॉट डिस्कस अबाउट द इस्लाम वी विल नॉट डिस्कस अबाउट द अवर हिस्ट्री वी नॉट डिस्कस अबाउट अवर सादा कराम सो दिस इज ए वेरी यू नो इट्स ए ट्रेजडी फॉर अस सो वॉट आई नीड यू पीपुल प्लीज कम Asad is here, and you take his address. And he is a very learned man. And he so I want to request you to come there and join and do something about this thing. We'll, we'll wrap up there. Jazakallah khair, everyone. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Allahumma salli ala Sayyidina Muhammadin wa ala ashabi Sayyidina Muhammadin wa barikuhu sallam. Rabbana aghfilana wa ikhwanina alladhina sabakuna bil iman wa la taj'alna fi qulubina ghillan lilladhina amanu rabbana inna karaufar rahim. Rahmatika ya arhamar rahim. Um, just uh, next week, we're, we're going to be doing the first chapter of Mona Rumi's Masnavi. We encourage everyone to come. Um, it's a really beautiful, beautiful. I mean, every Mughal king had studied the Masnavi in some portion. Um, Aurangzeb and Shah Jahan knew the Masnavi um, very intimately. It's it's such an important part of our Torah and our civilization. And I just, uh, I, I really hope that, that people can make it. Just, um, you know, as Aurangzeb said, Murshid e Rum. And, you know, Iqbal said, Ey mutreb e ghazali, Beiti ez murshid e Rum avar, Ta ghuta zanat janam dar atish e tabrezi. You know, and... Uh, I, I I truly hope that you know just a small effort that all of us can just remember. I just all I just want all of us just us to remember, you know that, um, and that perhaps maybe you know we can learn and you know build for the future. Inshallah. Jazakallah khair. Wa khairu da'wan alhamdulillahi rabbil alamin.